Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Friends, it's Anna, your Tree of Life podcast host. The Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven. Yeah, that's a mouthful. It was one of many cults operating in Southern California in the 1920s. And from here on, I'm going to call it the Great Eleven or the Blackburn Cult, as it's also known. Botched resurrections, cultists, pissing off an Italian organized crime syndicate, possible poisonings and mysterious disappearances, and ritual sacrifices of puppies. I'm not that into dogs, and even I know that's bad. Don't mess with the puppies. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please consider asking for help through a crisis line, a mental health professional, or a loved one. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. Before we begin, I have a couple of quick housekeeping items. I've gotten a few questions about supporting the podcast. If you're interested, there are a few ways you can do so. First, if you like the podcast, tell someone you know about it and leave a rating or review ranting about your one pet peeve on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. Second, if you want to support the show directly, help keep new episodes coming, or buy me a beer, you can make a one-time or recurring donation at failedutopia.com slash support for as little as $1. That's failedutopia.com slash support, and the link is at the bottom of the show notes. And lastly, you can support the show by sporting some super sweet Failed Utopia merchandise from failedutopia.com slash shop. T-shirts and tanks, coffee mugs, stickers, masks, super comfy joggers that I wear all the time, various sweatshirts and hoodies, phone cases, basically everything you need to look and feel like a total badass. I'm putting a link to failedutopia.com slash shop in the show notes. Thank you so much to all of you who are already supporting the show, and thanks for listening. It's all for the fans. Matilda May Otis Blackburn, she went by May, was born in 1881 in Iowa. She was reportedly a strange child. According to Samuel Fort's research in his book, The Cult of the Great Eleven, she claimed to hear voices starting from a very young age. It's possible her hallucinations were related to trauma from the death of her father when she was four years old. She described her early visions as the companionship of a spiritual dove. 
When she was 16, she married a Canadian guy named John Wheland and moved to South Dakota. He turned out to be a compulsive gambler who ruined them financially. The next year, May became pregnant with her daughter, Ruth Wheland. But the Wheland marriage was rocky, to say the least, and ultimately, John left May while she was pregnant and then got shot and killed in some kind of old-timey mining dispute. May asked her mother and stepfather to raise her baby, Ruth, in Minnesota, while she remarried and relocated to Washington State with her new husband, Rudolf Schultz. Young Ruth had been raised to believe May was her sister, not her mother. But after several years passed, May missed her daughter and wanted her back. So she and her new husband took six-year-old Ruth to Portland, Oregon. After May admitted to him that she had a daughter, But they didn't exactly settle down as a family. May ditched husband number two by making up some cockamamie story about husband number one still being alive and feeling guilty about remarrying when she hadn't actually been widowed in the first place. Obviously, this was some kind of made-up con because supposedly husband number one had been killed in some kind of Wild West pissing contest over a mining claim in California so there is no way they were reuniting. Plus, he was a good-for-nothing rotten scoundrel, remember? Anyway, whatever happened, after putting husband two in her rearview, May met a rich guy named Fremont Everett, a married lumber tycoon. They began an affair which was a financial windfall for the now single May. It was now 1912. May's stepfather died, and her mother remarried Walter Blackburn, who had a 12-year-old son, Ward Sitton Blackburn, who's going to come back into the story in a really freaky way later. May herself soon remarried yet again husband number three, George Bloom. He was another winner, a pedophile this time, but in addition to a criminal record, he somehow also had a few thousand dollars from winning a lawsuit, which May read about in a newspaper and then just had to meet him for his personality. Okay, I'm sure you're seeing a pattern here. May used guys for their money. And after the way husband number one treated her with the gambling and the old fangled frontier shenanigans, who can blame her? Anyway, needless to say, that marriage didn't last. Around this time, May's daughter Ruth was coming of age. Ruth was musical, at home on the stage, and she loved to perform. May saw an opportunity and decided to move their family to Hollywood and make Ruth a star. While other sources sensationalize this by describing Ruth as a stunner, beautiful, head-turning, well, I've seen photos, and I will tell you like it is. May and Ruth were both frumpy and homely. Not as glamorous of a story now, I know, but you heard it here first. Uh, By the way, Ruth supposedly also heard voices in her head from an early age, like her mother had. So in 1918, they headed to California. Unfortunately, Ruth's acting career was a non-starter, and she ended up getting work exotic dancing in seedy dance halls. It seemed like Ruth was happy enough spending her time auditioning for film roles she never got and dancing at nightclubs. 
but this was a low point for May. After sinking all of her resources gleaned from her several marriages and affairs into Ruth's career and getting nothing to show for it, she was basically penniless again after all that. She turned to the Bible. The next year, Ruth married a man named Edgar Rickenbaugh. But, of course, he turned out to be an abusive loser, and the two separated a couple of years later, though they couldn't afford to officially divorce. Then Ruth met a new man at one of the nightclubs she danced at, Arthur Osborne. Okay, here's where things get weird. One day, the angel Gabriel visited May and Ruth in their apartment. He appeared in a vision and told them they were God's two witnesses who would announce the end of the world. They were to receive messages from Gabriel and transmit them to the rest of the world by writing a book called The Seven Trumpets of Gabriel. Gabriel showed up at their apartment every day after that and made them write things down. Either Gabriel was really hanging out with May and Ruth or the two women were sharing in an elaborate hallucination. Or it was a story they made up. Conveniently, the revelations from Gabriel would not only herald the apocalypse, they also included the so-called lost measurements, which were the locations of all the valuable oil and gold deposits in the world. Ruth asked her boyfriend Arthur Osborne for money so she could work on the book and not have to spend all her time working at the dance halls. Arthur agreed and took out a loan to help her out. He figured it was a good investment since everyone in the world would need a copy of this book, not to mention becoming privy to the secret locations of all the oil and mineral deposits in the world. He also put up the money for Ruth's divorce from her husband, Edgar Rickenbaugh. Arthur was rewarded for his help when he ended up losing his job, couldn't repay the loans he'd taken out to finance the book, had to join the military, and lost touch with Ruth forever when she moved and left no forwarding address. Sad. By 1923, May and Ruth had run through poor Arthur's loan money and decided to head back to Portland, Oregon and look for new investors to keep them afloat while they finished their book of Gabriel's prophecies. May really started honing her pitch around this time, and her weird ideas somehow attracted her first few recruits, including Martha and William Rhodes early acolytes who were really into Christian science, which shared some themes with May's developing theology. May took a special liking to the Rhodes family, especially their adopted daughter, Willa, who she made a priestess of the order. But May and Ruth needed more followers and more money to really make a success out of their new group, so they returned again to Los Angeles. The Rhodes family wouldn't follow them there until the end of 1924. This period of time marked a heyday for secret societies and cults in America, with California being a particular hotspot. Some estimates say over 400 cults were operating just in Southern California, with some 200,000 members. May took a lesson from some of the other large, successful cults operating at the time and started ramping up the apocalyptic doomsday rhetoric that was very popular to attract more followers. 
it was a winning strategy. Incidentally, it's a strategy that still works very well today. Doomsday cults based in Christianity are still prolific. May also used some other very common cult tactics. Cult members had to renounce the outside world and turn over all their money and assets to May, now going by Queen May, Mother, or the Heel of God. She also renamed her followers with cult-specific names, which is another thing we see time and again with these groups. It distances the followers from the rest of the world and cements their identity as part of the group. I believe in this case, it was something to do with restoring their so-called heavenly or celestial names. May's celestial name was the North Star, while Ruth's was inexplicably the Grand Royal of the Water of the Father's Blood. But she later went by the Royal Warder of the Purple Robes after she became a high priestess, because that sounds so much better. But one of their practices that might be less common at least as far as I know, was having new recruits rub butter on their feet and eat alfalfa sprouts. I don't know what the purpose of that was. May also used parlor tricks to make followers think they were witnessing strange events, like hearing voices and seeing visions. Most of this stuff was just totally goofy and silly. She also had some wacky conspiracy theory connecting Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, Emancipation, Noah of Ark fame, and his son Ham to her theology. I mean, it's really ridiculous, but again, sometimes that's what gets the true believers to stay. To admit you were wrong about any of it means to admit, even just to yourself, that you were wrong about a lot of other crazy stuff you believed and that you were fooled. And that's a big mental hurdle that keeps many cult followers from being able to pull the blinders off. May's theology was mostly biblical, had some things in common with Christian science, and also veered wildly into paganism at times, including magic and sacrifices. According to researcher and author Samuel Fort, the cult was also worshipping the goddess Hecate. If you've never heard of Hecate, I don't blame you. If you're sitting there thinking, I've heard that name before, but where? Well, it might be from Macbeth. The three witches summon her in the play, though in Shakespeare, they usually pronounce it Hecate. I'll be honest, I don't remember all the exact details of the Hecate witch thing, but I know it happens somewhere in the middle of the play, right before and or after Everyone murders and or gets murdered. Such a great play. Anywho, Hecate is a goddess from classical mythology, and if we're going Greek, we can say Akati. She's associated with both Earth and Hades, specifically crossroads, sorcery and magic, medicine and poison, and hounds. Yes, dogs. Remember that puppy thing I was talking about earlier? We're inching closer to it, sorry. By this time, things were finally going well, and for whatever reason, May decided to get married again. And this time, not just any old man would do. She picked her stepbrother, Ward Sitton Blackburn, who incidentally was younger than her daughter Ruth, and he was another known pedophile. 
This is really weird, but May also had developed a severe touch phobia at this time in her life and didn't touch anyone except her daughter. Her followers would have to give her things by setting them on the ground in front of her. It's hard to say if this was a real phobia that she developed or just a quirky affect to set herself above her followers. Ruth also was on the hunt for a new man and found another winner in jealous, violent 17-year-old ex-con Sammy Rizzio, whose family had links to Italian organized crime group The Black Hand and whose father was a suspected triple murderer. The two married, but Sammy refused the cult's teachings and remained Catholic, so he was pretty much persona non grata among the Divine Order. After he'd had a particularly violent encounter with Ruth, May explained to a druggist who was a member of the cult that Gabriel, the angel, had ordered her to kill Sammy and that she needed a strong poison. The druggist first refused, but a month later, May asked again, this time claiming the poison would only be used symbolically in a ceremony. The druggist gave her some chloroform and a bottle containing colored water that was intended to trick May into believing it was poison long enough for the druggist and her husband to escape from the cult, which they successfully did. The supposedly symbolic ceremony was carried out, but Sammy Rizzio was never seen again. Not by the cult, not by his family, not by anyone. The Rizzio family went to great lengths to find out what happened to Sammy. One of his brothers even came and joined the cult to spy on May for 10 months, but he didn't find a smoking gun. Finally, Sammy's mother wrote to May and threatened to contact the police. But lo and behold, a police officer was a member of the Blackburn cult, and he visited the Rizzio family and told them to stay out of it. That was the end of it. By now, May and Ruth Blackburn were running a full-blown murderous cult, and they hadn't delivered on any of their promises. There was no book, The Seven Trumpets of Gabriel, and no riches or eternal life for their followers, which was also part of the deal. In 1924, the Rhodes family from Portland came to California to join the cult. May's mother, who was also now involved with the cult, also took a special liking to the Rhodes' now 16-year-old daughter, Willa, and gave her seven puppies, named after the seven notes of the musical scale, Do, Re, Mi, etc. The musical scale played a role in the cult's theology. That kind of weirded me out because it reminded me of T and Do from Heaven's Gate, the two witnesses, the musical notes, weird and creepy, but totally unrelated as far as I know. If you haven't listened to the Heaven's Gate episode of this podcast, that was episode nine. Well, Willa Rhodes died on New Year's Day, 1925. I've seen different accounts of how exactly she died. The most widely circulated story is that she had an untreated tooth abscess. As I mentioned, her family were Christian scientists and, due to their beliefs, prayed over her and used faith healing rather than consulting with a dentist or doctor, even though she became bedridden. 
so perhaps she died from sepsis as the infection went untreated. I have also read that she may have died of diphtheria. Either way, tragically, the 16-year-old passed away. This was a problem for the Blackburns because the cult's promises included immortality in this life, and now someone had died, a prominent princess of the group, no less. So May ordered the death be kept secret, even from other cult members who lived in the same building, and May told the Rhodes family that Willa was the tree of life and that she would be resurrected and bring back the angel of death with her, ushering in the end of the world. May told the rest of the group that Willa was out of town and would return right before the apocalypse, which, remember, was going to take place right after her book was published. Yeah. Those seven puppies Willa had been given shortly before she died were sacrificed by the Rhodes family and were placed alongside Willa's body in an ice bath with flowers, salt, and spices and left there for 14 months. Um, aside from the obvious, the practical considerations are getting to me. Where are they getting all this ice? It's 1925. It's not like they have an ice machine at home. At that time, people had ice delivered to their homes, and supposedly they needed about 600 pounds of it a week. So, I mean, that would be a thing to keep a corpse on ice for over a year in a warm climate. Remember, they lived in LA, and Willa was upstairs, not even in some cold basement. Not to mention, what if someone wants to, you know, take a bath? Now, far be it from me to tell you guys what to do with your loved one's remains, but it seems like most people are creeped out by this. After 14 months in the ice bath, the Rhodes family moved, taking Willa and the seven puppies with them. Her death was still a secret, so they had to do it sneakily in the middle of the night. They moved the bodies again after a few months, ultimately moving the remains into metal coffins in a crawl space under the floorboards of a house they purchased in Venice, California. Of course, they left a way out for when Willa and the puppies were resurrected. Martha Rhodes decided to embalm her daughter Willa with her own special concoction, which she said was what they used on Jesus. So she rubbed the stuff all over Willa before she went in the coffin. What Martha didn't know, since she was not in fact a trained embalmer, was that the embalming process is supposed to involve the internal organs. So Willa's skin was preserved, but her insides were not. Willa wouldn't be found by authorities until she'd been dead almost five years. Sorry, that was a spoiler. Willa Rhodes was never resurrected. Neither were the puppies. The Blackburns were very adept at reeling in rich marks, and the biggest fish was 33-year-old Clifford Dabney, wealthy oil tycoon, along with his wife, Alice. When they met Mae Blackburn, they were intrigued by her forthcoming book, 
which she was now calling the Great Sixth Seal. A much more exciting title. Publication of the book would be the first step in a chain of apocalyptic events that would result in the cult's queens, May and Ruth, becoming rulers of the world, and their followers would become immortal celestial beings. May asked Clifford Dabney for $5,000 to fund this elusive manuscript, and to him, it seemed like a great deal. $5,000 was chump change for a guy like him, and if this book really revealed the secret locations of all the oil deposits in the world, well, he would become even more fabulously wealthy. The Dabneys also purchased Concords for $500, which were cult rituals, and got the titles The Hereafter and Now and The Holy Keystone for only $500. What a bargain! This exchange was the beginning of the end for Clifford Dabney. He got further and further into the cult. May was good at manipulation, and her tactics worked very well on Clifford. She kept extending the publication date of the book and asking him for more money to fund it. Ultimately, the Blackburns squeezed about $200,000 out of him over the next few years. That's more like $3 million today. Of course, Clifford Dabney wasn't the only mark to lose it all to the Blackburns. Devotees worked for no pay at Harmony Hamlet, a 164-acre compound in the Simi Valley of California, a property given to May Blackburn by Clifford Dabney in 1926. Most of the cult's followers moved to the new property. It was primitive. They carried water and building materials cross-country and lived in tents while they built shitty cabins to live in. After a couple of years, they had completed construction on a large temple with a golden throne and an amphitheater where blood sacrifices were made, including mules that the cult called Jaws of Death. Yeah, things were escalating. And while I hate to call it a heyday, the cult was thriving, likely boasting 100 or so followers. May Blackburn wanted more out of Harmony Hamlet, including a massive printing operation that could print enough copies of her forthcoming End Times book for every human on Earth. Because, of course, everyone on Earth was going to need a copy of this book, just as soon as she finished it. She also wanted massive refrigeration units installed to keep dead cult members in until the apocalypse, when, I guess, they would magically revive, like Willa Rhodes was also going to, and then transform into celestial beings, as promised. For the next few years, there were strange reports of Blackburn followers dancing naked in the woods and carrying out their blood sacrifices, And then there was the woman who got baked in an oven. 30-year-old Blackburn acolyte Frances Turner became ill, and to cure her so-called blood malady, May ordered her to be put into a brick oven constructed on the grounds of Harmony Hamlet, where she predictably overheated and died. The Blackburns had gotten away with their many crimes for years, but eventually the cult couldn't fly under the radar any longer. Things were falling apart, 
after years of the apocalypse never arriving as predicted, and many followers were becoming disenchanted with the Great Eleven. By 1929, Clifford and Alice Dabney and some other Blackburn followers had lost faith in Mama Blackburn's promises of the book and the apocalypse. Dabney, the filthy rich oil tycoon, had gone broke. He'd had enough and went to the police, alleging he'd been conned. Of course, there were also rumors and allegations of unreported deaths and disappearances and police finally started seriously investigating. That's when Willa Rhodes was found, thanks to an anonymous tip. May and Ruth Blackburn were charged with several counts of grand theft and turned themselves into police, as advised by a lawyer. But because many of Blackburn's followers were unwilling or unable to cooperate and provide evidence, some of the charges were dropped, including all of the charges against Ruth. Ultimately, May Blackburn went to trial in 1930 on 10 counts of grand theft. There were never any charges in relation to the deaths and disappearances tied to the Great Eleven, including Willa Rhodes, Sammy Rizzio, and Frances Turner. At trial, May's defense argued that she was running a church, not a cult, and that Dabney and others had donated their money willingly to said church. That didn't fly, and she was convicted on eight of the charges, sentenced to decades of prison time, and ordered to pay $30,000 in restitution to Clifford Dabney. Clifford actually did get some of his assets back, but May went free on appeal in a case that went to the California Supreme Court in 1931. The court said that testimony about the cult's rituals was wrongly admitted at the trial, writing, This is a free country where there is freedom of religious worship, and it is not actionable to the court if the defendant made certain representations as to being divine. The cult had mostly fallen apart by then, though May still had a few faithful acolytes. She passed away in 1951. Ruth passed away in 1978. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time. <laughs>